Welcome to Spies of London, the Westminster Walk. This walk begins at Pimlico Tube Station, primarily because it's the nearest station to MI6 at Vauxhall Cross, and it is therefore quite easy to get to for tourists, particularly people who don't know London that well. There are buses as well that serve the area of Pimlico quite well, and itself is a short walk from Victoria Station. So the first thing you'll notice when you arrive at Pimlico is there are a lot of exits or at least more than one. And more than one exit, especially if it's on a different street, always makes things challenging for walkers and for meeting people. So I suggest you follow signs to the Tate Gallery and you will then come out in the right place, either up the ramp or the steps, turn 180 degrees and you will see a brick building in front of you which is the National Crime Agency, or at least one of the National Crime Agency offices, perhaps the most secret. And outside of the NCA is an area with benches where you can meet me if I'm meeting you in person for Airbnb or where you can start yourself. We start at the National Crime Agency for one reason only and it's because it's above Pimlico Tube Station. The National Crime Agency is quite new, it doesn't have the exotic history of FBI in America and it's not vastly important to our Cold War history or to espionage in general but we can't pass it without mentioning it. Now in recent months after the opening of the American Embassy in Nine Elms, I had to change this walk to take the Embassy in. It's not much of a detour, but it does mean that you have to cross the main road and at certain times of the day this is a busy road. So if you orientate yourself with the National Crime Agency behind you, facing the road in front, you'll see a range of bus stops. Take a left there back towards the ramp where you just came out of, cross the road at the lights and then turn right. So you are following the road, which I think is to the west, more or less, into Pimlico. Walk a little further, and on the left you will see a road called St George's Square and a church, which is St Saviour's. And behind the church is a large grassy area, which is St George's Gardens. If you walk along this street, which is a really natural, historic Georgian terraced street, you will see a gate, a metal gate, and walk into the square. Now, we normally stop here to do our introductions because it's quieter than outside the tube station. It also gives me a chance to talk about our second site on the walk and really our first proper site, which is the massive, sort of communist-looking apartment block, which is Dolphin Square. The reason I like to do that discussion here is it's quiet and because Dolphin Square is a private area, it's not really fair to stop and talk about the place, uh, especially the kind of things we tend to talk about when the residents are walking past you. So we stop in St George's Square, exchange names, understand what's brought us together today for the walk, and then we talk about Dolphin Square. I have the luxury on these recordings of expanding more than I tend to on the route itself. The thing about these walks, or indeed any guided walk, is that the walk is always unsatisfactory to just about everybody. It is too long for some people and too short for others. Too quiet, too noisy, too windy, too hot, too cold. This is just human nature, but if I have 10 people on the walk, you can guarantee I'll get 10 different reviews. So feel free to fast forward any stages that you don't like the look of, but I do want to mention Dolphin Square in some detail, because as well as having a rich history, it has also been mentioned in the recent John le Carré book, A Legacy of Spies. And this book came out the month in September 2017 that I first started doing these walks, so I had to include this and I had a lot of John le Carré fans specifically interested in looking for Dolphin Square. But I first heard about Dolphin Square from another walker, 
who came along in August of that year when I was just launching the walks. And he asked me about Dolphin Square and he pointed in the direction of it. And I looked it up and I couldn't believe my eyes. So one thing to start us off here is to look at the instructions that Peter Gillam received in the John le Carre novel. Reading from John. Temporary accommodation has been obtained for you effective today's date at apartment 110B Hood House, Dolphin Square, London SW. Following conditions apply. I am to keep no pets, no unauthorised third party to be admitted. I am to be present and available in the premises between 2200 hours and 0700 hours or supply legal department with notification in advance. So Peter Gillam has been summoned back from his wonderful French farmhouse to account for past actions that he and George Smiley have carried out in the in the history, and it's particularly to do with Alec Lemus, who was in A Spy Who Came In From The Cold and was the, anti, the hero in that story. Now, Dolphin Square, you can look this up. As you know, I have a blog with some of these photos on that I used to hand around on a tablet. There is no substitute for actually going to Dolphin Square. It is massive. It is split into at least four different blocks or houses, of which Hood House, just mentioned, is one of them. And I tell people to keep a lookout for Hood House as we walk past. It has an underground swimming pool, a restaurant, shopping arcade. It's really nice. I love it. There's no balconies. There's no outdoor space except the garden in the centre. But I love it because it's roughly art deco. It was very, very grand when it was built. There was porters that would park your car for you. You could walk out across the road to a jetty where you could sail your yacht onto the river, which was never built, unfortunately. It was always planned, and it's in some of the diagrams that you'll see. I have a really interesting book about Dolphin Square. There was supposed to be a little harbour there for residents. That was never built, but there is a gardens there. So as you walk through Dolphin Square, keep John le Carre's words in mind. Soon the lighted hulk of Dolphin Square was rising at me out of the haze. Ever since I had rallied to the secret flag, the place has given me the shivers. Dolphin Square in my day had more safe flat to the cubic foot than any building on the planet, and there wasn't one of them where some luckless Joe hadn't been briefed or debriefed. It was also the place where Alec Lemus had spent his last night in England as a guest of Moscow's recruiter before setting out on the journey that killed him. Flat 110B Hood House did nothing to dispel his ghost. Circus safe flats had always been models of planned discomfort. So the idea is that he's not being sent to the Ritz here. He is being sent somewhere that is uncomfortable, tricky to get to, and foggy. And that's to give him the jitters before he gets interrogated by his old masters. And there is a connection here, of course, between Hood House and the Hood Hoodlum gangster kind of idea. And Alex son seems to think that they are basically naughty boys and hoodlums. They're not really like diplomats or police people. They are really trouble. And it's a really dark world that they operate in. Well, he would think that, wouldn't he? Because his father was killed in the line of duty. But it's a, it's a viewpoint. And the more I dig into these spy stories, the more you wonder what it's all for. Because 30, 40, 50 years after these massive scandals, especially around Kim Philby, Anthony Blunt and the Moles, which John le Carre adapted for his most famous stories, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy series, of which this is one. 30, 40, 50 years later, nobody remembers what was going on or what it was all about or knows anybody, and the world moves on. So what seems to be a matter of life and death, uh, earth-shattering importance at the time, suddenly looks a bit silly 40 years later, unless you are 
personally involved and your family's been affected by these events. So there's no question that Dolphin Square was very grand. It is still very large, but it's lost some of its grandeur and it's a little bit dusty and faded around the edges. But we leave by the front gate, which is always open, as far as I can tell, 24-7. Cross the road, however you prefer, and into the gardens opposite. And if you walk to the riverbank, you will see the US Embassy at Nine Elms. And this really is an important building. It has been 10 years or so in the making. It's effectively a cube. I'm certain there are several levels of basement. At least one edge of the site is an artificial lake, which is helpful against terrorists and attacks. And the reason uh, America moved here was because Grosvenor Square, which you will find on the Mayfair Walk, was just too claustrophobic. They had experienced rocket attacks and bombs in other countries, and they've increased security. But the London government wouldn't let America seal off the streets around Grosvenor Square and basically occupy those streets. So although one edge was comparatively safe from the park, or they could, of course, fire an RPG across the park quite easily, the other sides, the other three sides where you have side streets right next to the building, were really becoming a terrorist worry. Nothing ever happened there, of course. The police, the British police and the Americans are very sharp on their security. But although nothing happened, I think the building was getting tired. It needed a revamp. It was in a bad location in many ways. So America could move to Nine Elms, have a much bigger site, most of which is empty, but it's that buffer between American land and the outside world, which gives them peace of mind. And it's a very modern, eco-friendly building. It looks fabulous. And although it is in the middle of nowhere, Nine Elms is being developed right the way around to Battersea and the Battersea Power Station which used to provide power to Dolphin Square. So, the American Embassy itself is very dramatic, but you have to see it to really believe it, just like with Dolphin Square. So the story I normally tell here is the one where Philby and Burgess and McLean found themselves working with the CIA in America, representing MI6. And it was really Guy Burgess that led to the problems that these three men had, and you have to wonder if Guy Burgess hadn't been so indiscreet and reckless whether they would ever have been caught, because the sequence of events, as I recall it, was essentially that Burgess had been getting more and more drunk, driving faster and faster in his car. He used to get stopped frequently for speeding and just becoming a problem. And as the Americans, and it was the Americans who discovered these men, as the Americans did more and more research, they started to realise that McLean in particular was trouble. And this investigation reached the ears of Kim Philby which implicated him because he told McLean that he had to get out of America, risk capture and interrogation. So Burgess accompanied McLean back to England. They said a very short time before catching the ferry to France and then escaping to Moscow. But when this happened, the Americans realised that somebody else must be involved to have tipped them off. And that investigation eventually led to the door of Kim Philby and resulted in his defection to Moscow as well. So although the Americans had had suspicions for some time, it was really Burgess's behaviour that tipped them over the edge and got them involved and got them close to understanding exactly what was going on. Britain didn't really believe that Philby was involved and that was partly down to his charisma and charm that they didn't believe it and his background as well. And you'll see his school later in this walk. So that's my American embassy story and it's a fascinating building, but you can walk along the river now towards the bridge now, unfortunately, this is one of the bridges where you cannot walk underneath. The footpath stops at the bridge. So you must exit to the road. Then what I prefer to do is go down to the lights at the crossroads 
cross over, stay in front of the Riverside Apartments so that you get a much more dramatic view of MI6 when it eventually blasts into your eye line. Or you can walk straight back towards the river uh, next to the bridge and follow the riverbank towards MI6. This location, which is a green space, a nice garden with some sculptures, is also opposite the Morpeth Arms, which is a fabulous pub for viewing MI6. They even have a viewing gallery up on the first floor with telescopes, which might seem hilarious because this was meant to be a secret building. Or was it? Well, in fact, Vauxhall Cross opened in 1994 and there was a new Act of Parliament published in that year, which for the very first time officially admitted the existence of MI5 and MI6. And from that point, the Director Generals of both agencies was published. The address was published. And now it might seem ridiculous in the age of Google Maps and Apple Maps that you can have an office that nobody knew about. But in the Leckenfield House years, the Broadway years, these locations were secret. They had no nameplates. In fact, they had deliberately confusing nameplates. Famously, the Minimax Fire Extinguisher Company of Ryslip was used on one of the buildings. Vauxhall Cross has been in every James Bond film since Pierce Brosnan's years. It's been rocketed with Judi Dench as M as she crossed the bridge. It's very famous. It's pretty much as iconic as you can get for a government office. And it's supposed to be the most secret. So it coincided with a opening up of the Secret Service in Britain, a more of an accountability, which was partly pushed through from Europe as well, trying to set these organisations on a sound legal footing. This also gave rise to the Section 7 set of protocols to do with MI6 agents and GCHQ agents breaking the laws of other countries whilst overseas, which is also mentioned in another episode. And there is a court case going on to try and uncover the precise nature of the rules around that act. Now, Section 7 is public knowledge, but there is a protocol that is not public knowledge, which specifies what the Foreign Secretary can and can't allow MI6 to do under what circumstances. That's the subject of an ongoing legal action. MI6 is absolutely fascinating, and it's like a fortress. But you will see it contrasts heavily to MI5. Even the colour of the security cameras on the building are completely different to MI5. The whole thing, which is glass and steel, is almost square, it has several basement levels, and it's severely fenced off with turnstiles and all kinds of other paraphernalia. Those things which look like guns on the roof are actually for cleaning the windows. We walk now along the riverbank towards MI5, and I do my trick here like I do on the Mayfair walk when I say stop at the Embassy of Qatar. What I say to people here is stop when you get to MI5. I like this stretch of the river. It's always windy no matter what the weather's doing, but it's a great walk. You often see a lot of tourists coming in and out of Thames House. And you see the Millbank Tower, once the home of the Labour Party of Great Britain, now the home of Russia today, with a fabulous view over the British government. People normally stop when they get to the Maritime Organisation, which is on the south bank of the Thames. Perhaps this is because it has so many flags, but the building of interest to us is on the same bank as you, and it's right under your nose if you can see the Maritime Organisation. Turn around face the road and you'll see a very large brick building with a huge archway. This is Thames House and it's been the home of MI5 for just about as long as MI6 have been there across the river. As always with these kind of buildings there are rumours of a tunnel between the two so that the heads and staff can get together at times of crisis or emergency. This is eminently believable. It wasn't refuted by my Navy colleague, believe it if you will. This MI5 headquarters has appeared in Spooks. It was also the scene of a terror attack when a man emerged into the foyer 
brandishing a knife. He was apprehended within seconds. But it does show a level of openness that MI6 does not share. There is no way you could get into the foyer of MI6 because it's fenced off behind turnstiles. MI5, although the main entrance does have bomb-proof shutters behind, these are normally open during office hours. On one of my walks, when I visited Marsham Court, which is behind this building and our next stop, I could see an open door at the back that it felt like anybody could just walk into. This would be deceiving because there are lots of security cameras on the building. There are the classic tank-proof bollards around every British government building here in Westminster. It is pretty secure, but it just has the feeling that it's less secure in, in the sense of being more welcoming than MI6, and I think that is partly deliberate. Partly it's the fact that the building was designed for other purposes and is the mirror image of one across the roundabout, whereas MI6 was custom-built from the ground up on a virgin site, just like the American embassy. So that's Thames House. Take a close look and then walk around the back of the building and you will head towards Marsham Court, which was the home of Morris Oldfield, a former head of the Secret Service and once the target of terrorist bombers. So I left you in front of Thames House. If you walk around the back, go on to Thorny Street. So you are walking along Millbank, left at the roundabout, left again into Thorny Street, then right into Page Street. Walk along Page Street where you will see St John's Gardens on your right and then take a left into Marsham Street. And the building directly ahead of you across the road is Marsham Court. Marsham Court was made famous specifically flat number six, as being the home of Morris Oldfield, one of the great leaders of MI6. Morris Oldfield is the basis for Alec Guinness's representation of the character George Smiley from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's not true to say that Oldfield was the model for the character, because John le Carre in some respects based Smiley on his boss John Bingham. But when Alec Guinness was researching the character for the TV series, he asked John le Carre if he could meet somebody who was a spy, and John suggested Morris Oldfield and set up a lunch between the two men. So the heavy, thick glasses of Morris Oldfield, the grey hair, is all Alec Guinness, and this is the character in terms of physical appearance that became George Smiley in the BBC television series. But Oldfield was a legend because he modernised MI6, he was a statesman and an absolute professional. During Oldfield's tenure as the Director General of MI6, a lot of time was spent worrying about issues during the Troubles on the island of Ireland. And in fact, terrorists planted a bomb outside Marsham Court specifically to assassinate Morris Oldfield. Morris would often go from his flat downstairs to Shepherd's Restaurant and I have here a note that suggests it was once called Lockett's. He would often eat there, and one evening, as he was out, Irish terrorists planted a bomb amongst the flower baskets outside the restaurant, outside Morris's flat. Because he was watched around the clock, Metropolitan Police Special Branch realised what was going on and defused the bomb. But this perhaps helps to show why there was so much secrecy around MI6, at least in the 60s and 70s, and perhaps why by the 90s it seemed a bit ridiculous. There were genuine threats to Secretary of States for Northern Ireland, including Airy Neve, who you will meet in my Baker Street World War II war, and also to members of the police and security services at that time. They were a natural target for terrorist activity. 
So Oldfield lived in the shadows, he lived here in Marsham Court, which although is very handy for today's Thames House MI5, was quite a walk from Broadway buildings. You will see more of Broadway buildings later in this walk. So we walk back along Marsham Street from Marsham Court and Shepherds towards the main road. The main road is Horsefury Road and you will soon come to a crossroads. Diagonally opposite you is the modern day Home Office. It's a very modern building. There's rainbow glass above the front entrance. No need to spend much time here except that this was the location because it was quiet where I often spoke about the Bulgarian umbrella murder. True to say that the Bulgarian umbrella murder had nothing to do with MI5, but it's a quiet spot for a longer story. So come off the main road, down one of the side streets, to listen to this one. So back in the 70s, ricin was a deadly poison in the way that perhaps polonium or novichok are today. There was no antidote, and a good dose of ricin would ensure death. Back then there was a Bulgarian dissident who had become a journalist, which has other parallels to Alexander Litvinenko, who is mentioned in my Mayfair walk. But Georgi Markov, or Yorgi Markov, was known to the Secret Service, known to be an anti-communist agitator, and fled to London to work as a journalist. He was not safe in London, in the same way that Sergei Skripal and Alexander Litvinenko were not. Although Markov was Bulgarian, it was a communist country with much of the same sinister secret services. One morning as Markov was walking across the bridge, across the Thames, he felt a sharp pain in his thigh. And as he spun round, he saw a man dropping an umbrella and then hurrying off in a taxi. This seems to me to be the only evidence we have that it was the umbrella used to deliver the ricin pellet into Markov's leg. He felt unwell later that day and went to hospital where he later died. The ricin pellet was found during the post-mortem. Now, the interesting thing to me here is that after they researched and investigated this, they found a copycat assassination attempt in Paris a few weeks earlier on another person where the ricin pellet was not firmly lodged or it went wrong, didn't result in the death of the target. But it shows that the communists were using this, the pellet in the leg, the metal pellet containing ricin, which would then be slowly released into the bloodstream, ensuring death safely after the assassin had fled, has all the hallmarks of the Polonium and Novichok killings. They are silent killings, poison-based killings, with enough of a delay to make sure that the assassins can flee the country before the alarm is raised. I'm not convinced about the umbrella as the delivery mechanism, and neither is the Berlin Spy Museum, which have a replica of what they think the umbrella might have been like, but they're quite clear that they don't believe it was used one reason I have is that simply a metre-long walking umbrella, although it might look like a gun from a distance, we're not talking about firing a pellet out of a gun in this case. The umbrella was stabbed into the leg and then the ricin released, perhaps with a button and a spring mechanism. It was not fired like a projectile. If it had been fired like a projectile, the assassin would not have needed to walk past Markov, which is what happened on this occasion. My belief is that a device, perhaps more like an EpiPen, was used, a short device, perhaps like a fat felt tip, which could be easily thrust against the skin, and then a button could be pressed to release a small pellet, perhaps through a needle point or a sharp end, into the bloodstream. This would be much easier to deliver, easier to make, easier to transport across international borders, and just generally more effective. 
But, as with all of these stories, we will never know the whole truth. All we know is that Markov did die, he was assassinated, the, mo- the poison was ricin, and it did happen in London. The next foreign dissident to be killed on British soil was Alexander Litvinenko in 2006. This walk has had a couple of different routes over its lifetime. It's always been hard to connect this Thames House Home Office area on Horseferry Road to Broadway buildings and the old MI6 and then on to St James's Park and the Foreign Office. This is one area where a virtual walk really comes into its own because we are not quite so strictly tied to geography. However, in recent years, I've wanted to focus a little bit on Westminster School and sanctuary buildings. So we'll walk back towards the river, along the riverbank to Westminster Cathedral, where you will take a left into the courtyard by Westminster School. Now, the reason for stopping here at Westminster is partly that it's in the shadow of the cathedral, which is a grand sight for any tourist, but also it's the school where Kim Philby and his father went. It's a private school, and the choir boys here sing in the cathedral during big state events. It's a very privileged position, right in the heart of British society, both geographically and metaphorically. And this helps to explain why it was the Americans who had to discover Philby. He was so much part of the establishment, including his father, he was so well-liked, charismatic and well-known, that nobody, least of all the British Prime Minister, ever suspected him of being capable of spying for the Russians. But for whatever reason, and we will certainly visit Philby again in more detail in a future episode, he did turn to spying. He did believe that communism was the answer to fascism, and he did lead others, one way or another, to early deaths, including the Rosenbergs in America. Philby is also mentioned in my Guy Burgess special episode, which has already been recorded. So we pass through the courtyard, out the other side, and take a left outside Westminster School, and you will immediately see, on your hard left, Sanctuary Buildings, which was the headquarters of Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists in the 30s. Mosley was known also as the husband of Diana Mitford, which brings in the Mitfords, who you may remember from my Mayfair walk. Sister Nancy used to work at Haywood Hill, which was George Smiley's favourite bookshop. Not too much to say about the British Union of Fascists, because... They belong to a time period before the Second World War and perhaps during the Second World War, whereas we are focusing more in this walk on the Cold War. But certainly the fight against the fascists, the fight later on against Russia, was the context in which the Cold War was fought, and it's an important part of British and international history in Western Europe. So I would like to come back to them in future, but for now, take a look at the buildings. It's a really nice office. It's no longer used by any political party. And we will walk back towards Broadway, towards St James's Park tube station and artillery mansions. Just to remind you that the route and the points on this guided walk are available on Google Maps and the link is in the show notes. So after a short walk, we arrive at artillery mansions and you can see through the archway that it's a block of flats, a bit like Dolphin Square, similar time period, I think, but much smaller, but it's arranged around a central courtyard. And this is where... George Blake lived. There was also a connection to Greville Wynne and Penkovsky, but George Blake is the one that draws me here because I've followed his life, his history, particularly through the play Cellmates, which was revived recently at the Hampstead Theatre. Cellmates shows that George Blake was perhaps the unluckiest of the Russian spies, the Russian moles. And some people say that's because he wasn't from the upper middle class, upper class establishment. He was not British either. 
He was an immigrant to the UK, but had worked with the UK within our interests in Korea and got a taste for military and espionage work. But he was definitely from the wrong side of the tracks. He is the only one of the Russian moles to have served a prison sentence, and he was helped to escape by an Irish prisoner who partly felt sorry for him and also liked danger himself. So George Blake was sprung out of Wormwood Scrubs prison and escaped to Moscow where he lived for the rest of his life, came across Philby and the others, but none of the others went to prison. Interestingly for me, Blake would have served his prison sentence and become a free man afterwards if he could have lasted, but instead, because he fled to Russia, he was really not welcome back in the UK for the rest of his life, and he died in Russia in the same way that Philby did. But I find it strange that somebody who wasn't sentenced to a jail sentence, like Philby and Maclean and Burgess, could never come back. They were exiled, effectively, forever. Whereas a man who did go to jail, if only he could have seen that through, he would have been a free man afterwards. But perhaps the main reason he couldn't see that through is that he was given one of the longest jail sentences in British legal history, which I've got written down here, as 42 years, which was longer than it would be for killing somebody. And George Blake absolutely did not kill anybody, although they all say that, don't they? So George Blake, artillery mansions. Now, this area of London used to be where Scotland Yard was. It used to be MI6. It's very close to the Palace of Westminster. Therefore, there are a lot of offices around here for the British government. And interestingly, very, very recently, in the last year or two, it's been announced that GCHQ had an office here, besides St Ermin's Hotel and near the old MI6 building as well. It's also the previous home of the Home Office, now the Ministry of Justice. So we always spend a lot of time in this area. You're definitely into the second half of the walk now, but we still have a lot of exciting sights to see. We have the old MI6, St James's Park Tube, GCHQ and the Foreign Office. I left you outside Artillery Mansions, but primed you for a walk towards St James's Park and the Foreign Office. I did mention that in recent years, GCHQ have moved out of this area. They used to have an office in Palmer Street. However, it's impossible to locate on Google Maps. It should be labelled former GCHQ or something to make my life easier. And I can't remember which side of the street it's on. And it takes you quite a bit out of your way. So I will be looking up the Palmer Street office of GCHQ in more detail in a future episode of the regular Spies of London podcast. So no Palmer Street today. It's not an exciting building in any way. But we're going to walk instead from Artillery Mansions across Caxton Street, through the gardens and to the entranceway of St Ermin's Hotel. St Ermin's is really cool. It's where I filmed a special episode of Points of View to tie in with BBC's Little Drummer Girl, the John le Carré series, which was really good, starring Florence Pugh. St Ermin's is a boutique hotel. It's not massive, but it is very grand. It looks fabulous when it's got the Christmas decorations on. Formerly used as an office for MI6 and other associated spy agencies, as Artillery Mansions was. So you can see that MI6 now is growing out of its Broadway office, which you'll see in a second. It's grown out of the hotel, it's grown out of other offices around here, it's grown out of Artillery Mansions. And we're starting to see the build-up of pressure, which led them to move to Century House in Lambeth, and eventually on to the Vauxhall Cross building, which you saw earlier in this walk. So the organisations of MI6 and MI5 are getting grander and larger every year. But St Ermin's is special to me, it's special to many Cold War followers. 
it has a division bell in there, which means that an MP who is sitting in the bar knows when the votes are about to happen in Parliament and can scurry off to Westminster to vote. And it's a really nice hotel. It's not expensive by London standards. It's not huge. It's tucked out of the way. You might have found it difficult to find if you don't have your maps in your hand. But St Termin's is well worth a visit and a drink in the bar, if not a night or two, to explore Cold War London. Retrace your steps away from St Termin's Hotel and you will head around to St James's Park tube station. Just outside the station, you can stop and look up at the Broadway buildings. I believe it's number 50, now a Regis office. Just like Leckenfield House, it's a normal office building now, but it used to be the HQ of MI6 in John le Carre's day, and it's where John le Carre wrote some of his books, I believe, including The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Completely different prospect to the current Vauxhall Cross building. Much smaller, more compact, dingy dark corridors, bricks and stone. But I really like this building. I love the roof. I like the fact that it's right next to the tube, but nobody knew who worked here. The sign was the one that said Minimax Fire Extinguisher Company of Ryslip. But for me, for any John le Carre fan, to think of him writing his most famous works in this building just before he quit the service and then got the reputation and success that he needed to concentrate on his writing and to follow that up with Tinker Taylor is quite a special location for us. St James's Park Tube is also a special location in many ways as the tube station used by the spies if they weren't catching the bus to this area. If you follow the road around the corner, you will soon see the Ministry of Justice building, which used to be the Home Office before the split under John Reed. And if you keep walking around the corner, you'll eventually come to Queen Anne's Gate. Houses in this street, the townhouses, are moving back into private residences now, and they cost upwards of £10 or £20 million each. But not so long ago, they were used as offices, partly because they were so expensive, including the National Trust on one corner, and indeed the townhouse of Mansfield Cummings and MI6 behind you. So if you look for number 21, you will find Smith Cummings' house, the early offices of MI6, and apparently a tunnel in the basement into the main MI6 building in the background, so Smith Cumming could get in and out of work very easily at all hours of the day and night without being accosted or spotted. The best story I can think of about Smith Cumming who was the original C in many ways and started the tradition of signing letters with the letter C in green fountain pen ink. The best story about Smith Cummings is about his wooden leg. He was an absolute daring-do hero and he lost his leg in another incident which I can never quite remember. But anyway, he had a wooden leg and he used to shock people at interviews, new recruits, with what he could do with his leg. He had a trouser over it so it looked, if he was seated like a normal leg and he would ask the young recruits what they would do what they would be prepared to do for their country would you do this he would say with grand flourish as he stabbed his leg with a compass or a sharp pen or even a knife and the young boys as they were would flinch not knowing that he was stabbing it into his wooden prosthetic leg so smith cumming was a very serious man a very successful man but not without a sense of humor we can then make our way further along Queen Anne's Gate to 16 to 18, which was an office used by the British Army, and where Baden-Powell, Lord Baden-Powell, and the founder of the Boy Scouting movement used to work. Baden-Powell was an interesting chap. He had a career in the military, and I think realised the importance of intelligence and observation and careful watching 
And he was an artist and a photographer himself as well. And a lot of spies back then would use the guise of a tourist because it gave you an excuse for carrying a camera. But he liked to do sketching as well. And he went to Dalmatia, which is now in Croatia, and copied down aspects of a fortress there in great detail. But on every second page, he would draw pictures of insects and butterflies and this kind of thing. So anybody glancing through his book on the front of each page would see pictures of insects and butterflies. And on the other side, if they were not looking really closely, they'd miss the pictures of the fortresses. So Baden-Powell really had a a good war, uh, an interesting career in the military before he founded the Boy Scout movement, which was effectively a, a, a training ground for the military in many ways. And any boys who liked the Scouts could then be recruited into the military later on if they wanted to continue that as a career. I was in the Scouts, a lot of boys in the 80s and 70s were. I think it it is still going, of course, but perhaps not quite as centrally in the lives of British youths today as they were back then. So we're heading now towards the pub. I think it's called the Two Chairman. And just past the, the pub, you will see cockpit steps down. And apparently there was a cockpit, uh, an area for fighting cocks where people could gamble on them back in the day. But down cockpit steps, across the road, into St. James's Park, and take a hard right. So you're sort of following the road, but it's nicer to walk just inside the park. And you are heading towards the British Foreign Office. You're also heading towards the British Treasury, but that's not as interesting for our purposes. So outside the British Foreign Office is the official end for the walk. But it allows me to talk about the Act of Parliament that almost started this walk when we talked about MI6 being a purpose-built building that opened in 1994 at a time when MI6 became officially a government department and became officially legally represented. Part of that Act of Parliament, Section 7, is given over to the process by which MI6 agents can break the laws of foreign countries overseas. And those two things are important. They are not allowed to break British laws and they are not allowed to break laws in Britain. But they can absolve themselves of prosecution in Britain, at least, using Section 7. However, there is a detailed process behind this. And essentially what happens is that MI6 have to put together a detailed document showing what laws they need to break, why, when, who, give all the justifications. This document is then sent to the Foreign Secretary, who then signs it off. But it's very specific, and some people try to show that this Section 7 means that licence to kill is, is a thing in British law, which it isn't. Licence to kill, as used by Ian Fleming and James Bond, suggests that the holder of this pass has a free card which allows them to kill anybody they like, whenever they like, wherever they like. This is not the case. There is no licence to kill, and Section 7 is not giving you that right. However... Because the rules and the protocol is still shrouded in secrecy and is now the subject of a court case to try and expose it, it does lead to these wild imaginings. And in fact, Jack Straw did sign off some nefarious activities to do with extraordinary rendition, where British Secret Service agents abducted certain other individuals, I believe Syrians, for them to be interrogated by the CIA and waterboarded and all those nasty things which have now been discredited. But it was MI6 that helped that to happen, even though it was illegal. And it is strongly believed that that was signed off by the then Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw. This did get to court, or at least it nearly got to court, before, surprise, surprise, the British government settled for a very large amount of money, and the case disappeared. 
so we do not know specifically that Section 7 was used, but we are pretty sure that MI6 did abduct people. Whether they have ever killed people is a moot point. Surely it will come out in future if, it, if they have. Of course, the shooting of Irish dissidents by MI6 on Gibraltar is a big case that has still not been fully understood and resolved, I don't think. But the idea that an individual can be given a carte blanche licence to kill is nonsense. As this current court case goes through, we will see more perhaps about the process by which this is done and whether killing is explicitly ruled out or not, whether that is left open-ended, we don't know. But certainly Section 7 in the Act, which I will link to in the show notes, is very short, very brief, and has recently been amended to allow GCHQ staff to break laws as well. And there are sections in there which relate to electronic eavesdropping and the ability to break laws to do with that, even though they might be carried out on British soil, which is quite interesting. It's one thing to break laws abroad, perhaps. You may disagree. It's a different thing to break laws here, remotely, using computers, and then try and claim immunity from prosecution. But that's what Section 7 allows. It's very short, but very tantalising and very interesting. And I always stop the walk there because the Foreign Office is the British state office which runs MI6 effectively, or at least has oversight of MI6, in the same way that the Home Office has oversight over MI5. That distinction itself can cause friction. The idea of a James Bond licence to kill needs squashing, but there is still that tantalising possibility that MI6 agents could, with the permission of the government, kill foreign terrorists, foreign dissidents, foreign enemies. And on that grand note, we end the walk. I end it here because the Foreign Office is so beautiful and grand and it's a short walk to Westminster Tube, but you may also like to take a walk along Horse Guards towards the Mall just for a quick look at the police memorial, especially as the British policeman was stabbed recently outside Westminster Palace and his name has now been added to the memorial but it commemorates all the British police officers through the years who have been killed on active duty and is a worthwhile remembrance that although MI6 might seem distant, detached, remote, exotic, exciting and lethal, there is, much closer to the front line, a large police force, the Metropolitan Police and other police forces too, protecting us from danger on a daily basis, putting their own lives at risk. And that is the serious, not not message, but the serious aspect to this. It may be a lot of fun, it may be a tourist activity for us, but ultimately MI6, MI5, GCHQ and the police are there to protect British people and British commercial and national interest. And I have to remind myself of that when I'm buried in the archives looking at what might or might not have happened in 1960 in Berlin, for example. But it is true and it's worth remembering. And I will leave you here. You can walk up to Trafalgar Square if you're at the police memorial, or you can walk over to Westminster Tube Station if you're still at the Foreign Office. I hope you've enjoyed this walk. I really enjoy it because it's got such dramatic sights, but it is the longest walk, and some people find that a little bit too long, a little bit too quick. I do like to try and rush between the points to get more time to talk. So at least with these virtual tours, you can now go at your own pace. Perhaps you're outside the UK and can't get here at the moment and wish to just listen, which is great too. But I will put as much into the show notes and onto the blogs as I can to show you the pictures and the sights that you will miss if you are not able to make it to London this year. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again soon on the podcast.
You can also sign up using your email address for newsletters on the website www.spiesoflondon.uk.